So for today, our topic is going to be on third parties in the context of politics. We're recording this on November 1st, so just a couple days before the U.S. general election for president. That'll be interesting, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit at the end. Um, but on the topic of third parties, what I was thinking of in bringing this up is that uh, third parties have been around for as long as the main two-party system has been around. Uh, and by system, I mean the the general fact that two major parties, the Democrats and Republicans, for the vast majority of recent history, have been the overwhelming majority of the representation in the United States politics. There are a few uh, third parties that have existed. So there's the Libertarian Party is the largest third party in the U.S., and then there's the Green Party, there's the Constitutional Party, and there have been a few other parties in the past, um, and maybe there are <laughs> a large number of very small parties that um, maybe, you know, fluctuate in and out of existence, but those are the more persistent ones. So in bringing all this up, my question is, what what is the significance of third parties, and how do they affect the general politics. So obviously, as third parties, they don't have a majority of the influence, but they do have some influence, or maybe they're a threat of influence, something like that. How do they affect general politics? And finally, sort of building up to, is it good to have third parties, or are they bad? What is good and bad about them? And does this show anything about maybe wanting to trend in the direction of having a more pluralistic uh, party system, having more than two parties, for example, as it occurs in some other parts of the world, but definitely not in the United States. Okay. Um, yeah, may, uh, maybe we're not super well-equipped to answer this question, but I th I know in, in like the American uh, context, which we're talking about, uh, third parties have uh had you know policies that neither of the major parties had that eventually got adopted by the major parties mm. uh, as they were forced to adopt them uh just to kind of get the votes so yeah what i've heard is like like there were progressive third parties um in the mid 20th century that had policies that got adopted and then that kind of made those parties irrelevant and then uh i think people have said similar things about the libertarian party mm. where i mean it's definitely true that many of their platform uh policies uh were adopted by the major parties um yeah i don't know how much of that was related to the fact that there was a libertarian party but it's definitely true that um, like like for marijuana legalization or gay marriage or a lot of civil liberty topics, um, those things 
were represented by the Libertarian Party before any other party. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So there's this idea of uh, the policies of the two major parties change over time. And it seems like they change in relatively predictable ways where maybe there's a smaller parties that represent those priorities and they are like, you know, too early. <laughs> or maybe they represent that some of the population is merging off of the two parties and are willing to join a third party in order to uh, fight for these specific causes. And then eventually the whole system transitions over and then those policies such as marijuana legalization are not just part of the third parties anymore. They've been adopted into the main two-party apparatus. Yeah. Yeah, actually, even in just the past 10 years, yeah, like, uh, I think there would be a lot of libertarians now if uh, the Democratic Party hadn't changed so much. And even now, I think the majority of Republican senators are for marijuana legalization. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, with gay marriage and with uh, pot legalization and then lots of, like, you know, drug-related stuff, like ending the war on drugs. Yeah, it seems mm -hmm. like... Um, yeah, the Libertarian Party would have been... would have, like, a significant number of votes by now if if the other parties hadn't adopted. Yeah, that seems plausible. And, of course, on its own, it's a bit of an ill-formed question because it's like, well, why would the parties not change their positions if they were losing members um which could happen but apparently seems to not be how the parties work the parties are willing to fluctuate their ideals and it's kind of funny because you think about the history of the main two parties the republicans and democrats and it's like they're what they've represented has been very general which seems to be okay like reasonable in the sense that if there are only two parties and they have to capture you know roughly a hundred percent of the population then they're gonna have to be pretty general ideologies they can't be like you know the party of this specific thing but the the smaller parties can be very much more focused like the libertarian party it would be considered pretty extreme today still yeah but you know, the parties still have to pretend to at least uh, stand for particular ideas. Yeah. Like the Democrats maybe for uh, social liberalism and uh, wealth redistribution and then conservatives for, or Republicans for conservatism and limited government, you know, stuff like that. There are these general ideas. Yeah, so I almost um, see those as like a propaganda. It's like, yeah, we have an ideology. It's, you know, conservatives are Republicans and liberals are Democrats. It's almost like, a, I think that, you know, in high school, I would have used those terms interchangeably as like synonyms. Right. But I think they they broadly map on, uh, if you look at tax policy or uh, if you look at all the different social issues, uh, gay marriage and... Uh, trans rights and all minority issues. I, I think they basically map correctly onto those things. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I guess you could find uh, exceptions. Like uh, maybe on foreign policy, it's hard to map those liberalism and conservatism onto particular uh, 
onto the particular preferences of the parties. But I think in general it, it works. Um, I think that in general, probably it does work. But I think that there's so much interleaving that it doesn't really define the parties as such, as well as the the examples that you give would uh, hint. What do you mean? Uh, these two examples? Yeah, I mean, uh, what are your examples? Well, this will go into a more detailed, like, policy discussion, and I don't have all of that information off the top of my head. But it's like, um, you know, the the Republicans are for limited government, say. But it turns out that actually under Republican administrations, the government has not been limited. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, largely, yeah. I mean, I, it seems like they do reduce the domestic budget and then massively increase the military budget. So it ends up being um, both parties have pretty similar. And they also, it's kind of budget sizes. <laughs> it's funny how this works, right? Uh, well, you I mean, have a decrease in taxes. That's something that the Republicans are known for, right? And that's sort of seen as a small government thing. But they also increase spending without paying for that spending so you get the tax in the form of inflation instead uh well in, in the form of borrowing but I, I don't know if that's true I, I i think both administrations have had pretty similar budget sizes i i think what happens is republicans don't end up cutting taxes very much uh overall oh yeah that's true they don't cut it very much but they do cut it more than Democrats. So you could define that as like, you know, something the Republicans do that the Democrats don't. I, I guess so. I, yeah, I, I guess. So. But overall, yeah, I, I don't see their deficits being yeah, very different. Yeah, they don't cut spending. But I mean, your example, I mean, that just maps onto the picture I laid out where Republicans are, uh, you know, generally do believe in limited government uh, and conservative ideas, but then foreign policy uh, is just kind of a different thing. And, and that, I think that basically explains why. I mean, I mean, that's that was your example of where Republicans aren't limited government, right? So I think, yeah, I don't know. I I, th I guess we're agreeing on where they are and aren't uh, conservative. But I, yeah, I would argue that that makes it so that uh, they are broadly identifiable with uh, what they say they are. Hmm. Uh, I don't think there's anything not conservative with uh, big militaries, but you could kind of make the you could make the argument kind of either way um yeah because you know spreading freedom around the world national security that kind of thing uh is compatible uh with uh, conservatives but you know big budgets isn't compatible yes generally so yeah i think that there's also a part of like the terms conservative and liberal that are a bit too general to say things very strongly about. 
because they aren't even necessarily in opposition, right? <laughs> um, I don't. Well, I think they are. I mean, that, I think that's my argument. Yeah. Well, what would you? So, all right, this is an interesting start. Then, so we're trying to describe the way that the the current two parties capture the majority of the population, the vast majority. So we're dividing this yeah. into say conservatives and liberals right and that's how they do it and then if we can admit this then what do third parties represent so well it depends on the party but in the case of the libertarian party they represent you know libertarianism it's like limited government uh combined with um i guess a limited foreign policy and and then also limited government applies to uh not just like regulation and that kind of thing but also to social policy mm-hmm. and so it's like fiscal conservatism combined with social liberalism mm-hmm. and that's a unique stance um and, you know in in that it's not either the liberal or conservative viewpoint right right yeah i think that uh, I forget where this axis comes from, but you, like, yeah, there's the the fiscal and social axes, and you can be either fiscally conservative or liberal, and you can be socially conservative or liberal, and generally they correlate, like with the, the uh, Republicans and Democrats. But then you have an opening there for another demographic that the libertarians uh, go into. Yeah, and then you know, other parties have their own particular take uh this year there's the birthday party do you know about Is that, that kanye's party yeah <laughs> i mean Jesus. <laughs> birthday party <laughs> yeah it's uh it's great isn't it uh yeah i so there, whatever that stands for and then stands for birthday uh, there's like <laughs> there's the communist party mm, yes uh, and then the, the green party oh yeah the, the green party that's I guess like heavy environmental focus. I don't really know. Other than maybe that. you could say they're socially liberal and fiscally liberal. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, no, that would be yeah. Uh, well, fiscally liberal in a particular way. I think so. They they want heavy spending on on the earth. Mm-hmm. I think so. They're sort of like progressives, basically hyper progressives. Yeah, yeah. Well, but is but it's green, right? So that's isn't that doesn't that mean they're environmentally focused? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there are green parties in other like countries socially. Well. Yeah, I feel like they probably but, uh, like progressive about the environment as opposed to like progressive usually applies to like you know social progress. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably are for with that ra- also, race. And... I would assume. Well, it's not really a priority if they're called the Green Party, right? Why? What would you call them instead? The Progressive Party? I'm not the Green Party <laughs> if, if your main thing is about race or gender or something. The Race Party. Yeah, and also uh, anti-vaccination. No, oh, is that a party? <laughs> oh, wait. This no, that's is... the oh, Green Party. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, you're right. I, they are different from just being hyper-liberals. They're like, I don't know, new li- n- not neoliberals. 
something else. Environmental. Yeah, I think the Democrats... Yeah, I think the Democrats have... I mean, they're so progressive enough that they're basically able to accommodate the really progressive people. Even well, Yeah. Oh, yeah, so there has been an interesting um, trend on that. that um, oh, man, I forgot where I saw this, but uh, you can look at the distribution on like a series of issues of you know social justice and things like that and <clears throat> it turns out that you know the parties have been growing more and more polarized right the democrats and republicans and part of this is that their democrats are becoming much more on average towards the lefter side of the spectrum so being more incorporated with these say you know uh communistic or race centric uh policy ideas yeah yeah i th- i think yeah a lot of it is like the population of conservatives and liberals which traditionally there's been twice as many conservatives as, as liberals but they were somewhat uh distributed between the two parties like being liberal didn't mean you were a democrat and now basically the sorting is becoming very very uh <laughs> precise so almost all liberals are are uh, not republicans right uh are democrats yeah and most conservatives are republicans yeah and my observation so, of this yeah. which i think so definitely part of it is how you were describing it before that um the liberals have started to just or sorry the democrats have started to capture just all liberals in general Whereas before, maybe it was a bit more sorted that liberals could have been Republicans as well. But I think it's also a cultural thing that it's not just that, you know, <laughs> it just happens to be that uh, Republicans became the party of conservatives only. But it's also in terms of demographics and things like that, right? Like cities are almost exclusively Democrat. And there's something to say about that, that there's like a, a cultural side of which party you're a part of and it has to do with who you're living with and who's in your local government and things like that yeah so i think uh yeah the trends and polarization uh are just track on to you know how people choose to live as well and yeah so liberals i think becoming a liberal or being a liberal is becoming more of a lifestyle especially the more liberal you are and yeah, uh, cities are almost exclusively run by uh, Democrats, and uh, yeah, uh, just a large proportion of very liberal people live in cities. And also, I, I think in the past it was yeah more that there were more conservatives that were Democrats than uh, liberals that were Republicans. You know, I, I think Democrats always had a pretty good hold on liberals, but. Um, yeah, now there's more liberals and conservatives are much more likely to be re- Republican than in the past. But there aren't as many conservative Democrats, which used to be a large demographic. Right, right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Because even now, it's weird just looking at like the Gallup polls, but there's way more liberals now than uh, there used to be, but there's still a lot more conservatives. It's, it's kind of strange. Yeah, I mean, I think can think of a couple obvious explanations, right? That just the population of cities has exploded over the last, you know, half century. 
but um i so you think cities are making people liberal well i think that uh it was already a trend that cities are more liberal so if you add more people to cities and that trend holds then you expect more liberals right Um, I'm sure the causation goes both ways. It's both that you're a liberal because you live in a city and being in a city or, and uh, people that are more liberal tend to go to cities. I, I, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. The sort of explanations I've heard are things like if you're living in a city, then you want to interface in a sort of ordered way with your neighbors and you want to have lots of, uh, codependencies because everything is run off everyone else and you don't want to think about uh, independence as much or you know like um, everything has to be about how people interact whereas if you're you know living in the countryside you just want to have your property rights respected and then you don't really care about what happens to everyone else that's like obviously a yeah. super reductive view but you can see how that sort of trend might play into it and, and you need like coordination for even public transportation and yeah there's, stuff like that to work in a city a lot more public goods on the line that people have to cooperate to get the use of yeah yeah I'm, i mean yeah i'm not sure but yeah i'm sure that plays some role uh and then yeah i mean another role is just young people are much more liberal and they're you know they're recently and there's and, you know, that population has been growing. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So there's certainly an age distribution factor. And I would imagine that young people are much more likely to be in third parties as well. Because they're just more, in, gen in general, they're more extreme, less less uh, conservative. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh yeah, maybe so. Maybe not as much in the anti-vaxxer uh, part, but yeah. <laughs> the Green Party maybe is trends more older. <laughs> well, I don't... But what other third parties are there? It's like the Libertarian Party and the Green Party. There's the birthday party. Yeah, that's not even a party affiliation. <laughs> uh, oh, it isn't? I thought, I thought you were saying it as if it was a real party. I don't think it's the real party. Hmm. Like, as in, yeah, you can be a yeah member of it, but it's what Kanye calls his party. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe there's a few things to start out here. There's this concept of a third party that's like an actual organized uh, thing that persists, like the Libertarians or the Green Party, or I think there's a constitutional party as well. Um, I think, so the Tea Party, though, the Tea Party was more of a movement. It wasn't actually a political party. Is that right? Yeah, it was never a political right. party. Okay. So then there are also examples of that where there's something that is a political influence or maybe they even have a candidate, but it's not something that's expected to persist. I think that the sort of example that we might be the most acquainted with is the Yang uh shoot for candidacy right was but he was he was running as a democrat but he wasn't part of really the democrat infrastructure uh i don't know about that i i'd, I'd say he just ran as ran for the democratic nomination same with bernie sanders mm -hmm. and then same with 
yeah, Ron Paul running for the Republican nomination. Hmm. There are exceptions, like Ralph Nader ran as an independent. So, so yeah, there's this other category uh, of independents right. where they just run on their own name. Okay, yeah. Basically. That's a good name for it, or I, I guess the official name for it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Bernie was an independent as a senator, right? But he ran as a Democrat. Yeah, for the nomination, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and independence. Um, yeah, it's, I mean that's kind of a strange category. Yeah, not a not a third party, but kind of a third alternative to the major parties. Mm-hmm. I think that, and they've been more successful. Well, the only successful non-major party run in recent history has been Ralph Nader. Uh, um, and, and not a third party run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, as a general statement as well, third parties have never been very successful in the United States. Uh, I think that. Let's see. I remember at the the very beginning there was the Whig Party, but I think that only lasted about a hundred years, and then it hasn't. Rev- hasn't revived since they were kind of a, a like a madisonian traditional libertarian party yeah i i, I don't know uh early <laughs> electoral politics well yeah neither do i and hopefully this conversation will depend on those details but uh so then coming to a more modern circumstance as the democrats and the republicans policy-wise and culturally-wise, have become more polarized. Does it become more important that we have strong third parties, do you think? Or is it surprising that third parties haven't been uh, much stronger, even though it seems like you know there should be an opening? Um, I think, though, that j- just before answering that or going into that, yeah, your point about independence is interesting as well, because uh, whenever I look at polls on stuff, I think that the independent polling is always the most interesting <laughs> and it usually is the most significant to like what i take away from the poll oh what do you think uh uh just like if it's large or not uh well whatever it is yeah i mean i've I've, yeah, I mean, I just see them as the undecided voters usually. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not just undecided though. It's it's that you haven't you haven't decided at all, like <laughs> because uh, I, I guess that so maybe there are some independents that are like, okay, I am deciding which party to uh, declare as, and then there are other independents that are just like, you know, I'm an independent. I don't declare a party. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I guess I I'm I'm an independent fan under that idea, but are you? Yeah, I guess I don't. Are you registered as an find independent? It. Oh, I I think I'm registered as a Republican. Oh, really? but <laughs> nice. Yeah, I guess technically I'm I'm that, but I'm yeah. I mean, that's not meaningful to me either. 
What isn't? Uh, that I'm registered as a Republican. It doesn't matter in terms of what your views on policies are? Yeah, or who I'm going to vote for. Mm -hmm. Don't you have to do something special to, like, if you're registered as, like, you know, party P, then you have to vote for party P or do something special in order to vote for another party? Yeah, some primaries you have to be registered in that right, party right. to vote uh, in them. Yeah, Republic, uh, Democrats in California, you have to be uh, a Democrat to vote in their primaries. Vote in their primaries. To vote in the Democrat primaries. Yeah. <laughs> Not just all the primaries. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. Well, yeah, t their primary. You have yeah. to be a Democrat to vote at all. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be the next act. The next public referendum. So about two parties versus multi-party question, I think it's not super important or meaningful whether there's two or more parties. I think what's meaningful is like, you know, if there's a mechanism for people's preferences to be reflected in the representatives in the government and yeah uh basically that and whether there is uh competent you know representatives and a functional government things like that but i think those things are largely independent of the number of parties there are so yeah a good ex american politics is a good example of this you know a hundred years ago we had the Republican and Democratic parties, but they, in many ways, they represent the opposite of what they represent now. Uh, if you think about the party of uh, limited government, um, it was probably the Democrats um, 100 or maybe a little more than 100 years ago, uh, stuff like that. Um, you know, the Republicans <laughs> party was the party of Lincoln. So, yeah, even though we've had two parties for a very long time, um, doesn't really say a lot about um, the kinds of ideas or the number of ideas that have been re represented in our government. Um, well, okay, I, I take your point that there are lots of other factors that are very important to the consideration of how well your political system works. And I think that personally, I, I would say that having, like, having multi-party system or a two-party system or, or a one-party system even, I think that that is important to the consideration. It, it's not the only deciding factor, but I think it's not negligible. And I think that the, the point of like having competent uh, people elected, I think that, yes, that's good. And having the you know, optimal party set up is not the only thing you need to do in order to get competent people elected. But I think it actually, it does make a difference to who gets elected and how and what the representation is like. I think that um, there's also um, along it that maybe there isn't like the perfect uh, political system in the abstract. It might depend on the population. So maybe, you know, the type of political party system that rises in the US wouldn't work in England or France or whatever else. So there's that also. So I think that we're just talking about the United States, though. 
Wait, so you don't give any reasons why um, the number of parties is meaningful? Well, I can give some clear examples for why the two extremes would not be good. So imagine a one-party system. I think that that would be bad because uh, if you only have one party, then they're going to maintain sort of a monopolistic uh, influence and they won't let third parties arise to any sort of competence. Uh, and that's going to be detrimental to the variety of policies and the types of uh, representation that people get because the party is not going to be uh, very representative. You're not going to have a choice. And then if you have, say, you know, like uh, 300 small parties and then none of them has even close to a, uh, like, I don't know, a third of the vote or something, then I think that's also a suboptimal situation because then there's no sort of, uh, there's no sort of loyalty to your party because every party is going to have to compromise with a bunch of other parties in order to get anything done. And in compromising, obviously, you're compromising the point of the party, which is whatever your party is fighting for specifically, in contrast to the other parties. And there are plenty of examples of countries where things like this have happened, and it doesn't turn out very well. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I disagree on both points. Oh, okay. I, I mean, about the one-party point, uh, your point was that you know they wouldn't allow third parties uh, any power, or second parties in, in this case. Yeah. But, I, I mean, that doesn't reply to my point because I think it's not interesting or meaningful whether how many parties there are. What's important is like whether different ideas are reflected in the government, whether the preferences of the population is uh, reflected in the government, and whether there's one or a million parties doesn't say anything about that. Um, it's just because the one party basically changes or can change, and if they are going to maintain control for a long time, they inevitably inevitably will change. And this is what Japan is has been a one party state for the past. I don't know, six, uh, more than sixty years. I mean, since World War Two, um, there's been one election <laughs> that uh, a second party won the prime ministership. Um, so the one uh, election where they won the diet and. That was pretty much uh, not a meaningful difference um, because the alternative wasn't meaningfully different. And probably um, in Japan, the, the one party hasn't changed that much, but I'd, it's, I'd say it's largely because they're a centrist party and they've, al they've always just been pretty close to the middle. And the different people in the party... Um, just represent all the different, basically relevant uh, policy stances. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's like, um, if you want a minister of finance, like you can pick whatever whatever kind of policy you want um, from the different candidates, and you can get people that are you know, uh, kind of more hawkish on foreign policy. That's kind of the current prime minister, and then you can get people that are very dovish. I mean, yeah. So there, and then and then there are other parties. Like there's a the biggest third party. Um, party. There's kind of a second party. Now there is a second party 
kind of, but that's kind of similar. And then the biggest third party is like uh, kind of a cult party. It's it's the Sokagakai. Oh, so that's like a church, basically. <laughs> um, so there are alternatives, but other than kind of that type of alternative, the one party uh, is reasonably representative of I mean, it, it is kind of representative, and there's been a lot of change in in the prime ministers and in the stances that they take. So, yeah, I mean, even if you compare, yeah, you could easily, I think, find a two-party state that has uh, less of a uh, difference um, or change in, in ideology. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I'm totally willing to admit that. And I can also offer another one-party system that I revere, which is Singapore, right? They've done pretty well, the People's Action Party. Oh, well, that's that's not a good example of <laughs> uh, the party representing people's preferences. That's just an autocracy. Well, I I don't think that we were only grading them by representing people's preferences. Uh, well, I th- I think um, Singapore just goes with your or- original argument that the number of parties is meaningful um, wh- when you're talking about, um, yeah, uh, people's uh, preferences. Uh, well, okay. <clears throat> yeah, so there's the dimension of how a multi-party system might affect the governance, which is whether or not people's preferences are represented and how well that happens. There's another question of like, you know, how competent are the people that are elected, right? So I think that those are distinct questions and they don't entirely uh, uncorrelate, but I think that they're not the same question. Yeah. Well, yeah. Singapore has reasonably competent government, but yeah, that's, um, uh, kind of not varying. Yeah, it's a one party and one ideology state. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, with the multi-party thing, an example that comes to mind. I think in Germany, there's right. There's at least three parties. Oh, yeah. But but Merkel has been prime minister for many years at this point, and it's so it's been kind of a one. Uh, ideology state. So uh, if you looked at yeah, I mean if you compared Germany to Japan I don't, I don't think that you could map on the number of parties there are to uh, how reflective they are of different viewpoints. Yeah, so I think though that the way that so th- I think that these examples could be used to demonstrate things that we've already shown to be true. The problem, though, is that um, obviously there's a lot of things different between Germany and Japan other than their party system, right? So you can't isolate differences and say that these differences are due to the party system or they're not due to the party system. Uh, well, I- I'm just saying what party system they have doesn't reflect um whether they have ideological uh or good ideological representation or not i mean that's just that's just my argument 
Well, I, I never said that it 100% reflects it all the time. I said that it influences it. It's a factor to consider. Uh, how is it a factor to consider? I think that it has influence on how well your uh, government works and how well your preferences are reflected in the government. But how? Well, like I was saying at the beginning, I, I think that there's a general influence in one-party systems that makes it so that people's preferences are not represented well by the government. And then there is a general trend in systems with very many parties that none of them have major influence, that there's so much compromising that people's uh, their preferences don't get uh, represented in the government. But for each of your examples, there's examples of the opposite. So Oh, right. So, I mean, the correct way to make this argument would be to do a controlled uh, historical analysis of like all the countries in the world, right? Uh, I don't know. I, I think, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not even disputing that there might be a correlation between the number of parties and the number of uh, ideologies represented. I'm almost not that interested in that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm just more interested in seeing, you know, uh, what kinds of ideologies are represented in any particular system that has some number of parties and um, when you do that analysis, I, I think you do that basically independently of the number of parties there are. Okay. I So I think then what we can, or I would propose this as something we can agree on, is that it has some effect, that there is some influence of how many parties there are, but it's not the question that you're interested in. You don't think that it has enough of an effect that that would be a major thing that you would want to find out more about. I, I don't know if there is an effect at all. And if there is an effect, I'd like to know the mechanism for it. But, um, because what if you have one party, but you have these two very different people who are vying for the chairmanship of the party. So in that case, the fact that it's one party doesn't do anything to uh, decrease the number of beliefs represented. And if anything, it, it could even help uh, two, two different types of people rise to power. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, so imagine, Ch so, so, okay, imagine China, right? And say there's two people vying for a chairmanship. Well, they're still going to both have to be dedicated communists, right? You can't be a non-communist running for chairmanship of China. Yes, but the reason is that China is a dictatorship and uh, it's not a democracy. So those are the meaningful factors there as opposed to the number of parties. I mean, same thing with Singapore. What's uh, important there is that it's run by a single family, not not the fact that there is just one party 
I don't see why the fact that it's just one party is ignored in these cases. Why why is that not a part of the consideration? Because it's not the fact that there's one party um, that makes it so that you can't have an alternative viewpoint. So, I mean, and that's the case for that is uh, countries with one party that do have ideological diversity. I mean, what makes China uh, hostile to foreign viewpoints is if you hold a foreign viewpoint, you, you get shut out of government by uh, a non-democratic entity. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Yeah, I think that the th- the thing that is confusing here then is that having a certain like having a number of parties is not a decision that anyone makes right it's not like you know the people decided you know what we're gonna have five parties or we're gonna have one. it is in the case of singapore and china it it is a decision that someone made uh sure but it's not a decision in general well in a democracy it isn't a decision in a democracy, it isn't a decision. Yeah, nobody decides in a d- democracy the number of parties that there are going to be. Uh-huh. But in China or Singapore, it is a decision uh, how many parties there will be. Mm-hmm. So then, which is one. Uh-huh. So then we can maybe the way that you're approaching this is like. Is the number of parties that a system has a sign that it is good or bad? Or a sign about, yeah, a good or bad in, yeah, the number of viewpoints represented or anything like that? Uh-huh. And then you're saying in the case of like China, well, uh, the fact that they have one party is not the telling sign that it's a bad uh, government in terms of representing people's viewpoints. It's the fact that they're totalitarian that's making that so. Yeah, I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not even saying good or bad. Just is the fact that it's a one-party state, does that say anything about the number of viewpoints represented? And I think not. Okay, well, I... It doesn't sound entirely implausible, but I, I it does sound implausible to me that the number of parties would have no effect. I think that it has some effect, that there's some correlation there that you would want to be able to identify. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I, so I don't know if that conflicts with what I'm saying, but, but I agree. And I, I think there might be some correlation between the number of parties and and the number of ideologies and i admit there might be some other things that it is sort of a proxy for like if you controlled for whether or not a government was a dictatorship slash like monarchy or a totalitarian or whatever and you controlled for whether they were like uh, economically destroyed by something or like infighting or something then maybe the fact of or the correlation of uh how many parties you have goes away i could see that but then my uh observation would just be that uh, the number of parties can often be a good proxy for these other phenomenon that are important for uh, how your views are represented and how well your government works. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I, agree, I agree that it's a good proxy for anything. But okay, 
I, I mean, I mean, having one party is a good just proxy for whether you're totalitarian. I would say, <laughs> or a dictatorship. Like every dictatorship is a one party system, obviously. So there's going to be something there that being one party is a proxy for. Uh, okay, sure, but I mean, I wouldn't look at the number of parties then. I would just look at whether it's totalitarian. Well, yeah, or but that's not. the that's what I mean by uh, proxy. Is that it is a factor that correlates with these other factors that and then those factors are the sort of causal factors yeah but a proxy should help you make a decision about a place and it doesn't help you make a decision if if the more important thing is just whether it's authoritarian or not well okay sure but if you don't know whether they're for authoritarian or not then having the proxy is useful sure okay yeah i mean it hard to think of <laughs> a situation that like example that. <laughs> yeah other than a thought experiment but yeah i mean i i don't mean to claim anything other than that though because it's almost like it's not even it's almost like a misnomer to say that uh japan has one part has one party and uh china has one party therefore they have this similarity like the one party that china has is just a completely different type of party than the one party that Japan has. Because it's, you know, it's not an electoral party. It doesn't need to seek out votes. Uh, it's not yeah, subject to these democratic pressures, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So this would go along with what you were saying before, which is that whether or not it has you know, so many parties is not important to how well your views are represented and how well your government works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm open to there being a correlation, uh, I guess, but uh, it's a very weak one. So I, I would try to look at the system mm-hmm. first. Okay. We we could talk. So in the uh, context of the United States, then the the sort of question this comes around to is, uh, if we should we you know should we expect third parties arising or falling away to be a good sign or a bad sign? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to go to next. Oh, okay, cool. So, yeah, I mean, but I have the same answer in the U.S., which is that I don't think it's meaningful whether we have third parties rise or fall. I think it doesn't say much about whether there's more ideas being represented in government. Uh, I think maybe a good example is recently with the Libertarian Party, where I, I think the number of you know, people voting libertarians going down to this election from the last election. But the number of libertarian ideas being represented in government, I think, is going up probably. You know, broadly, uh, people are, the parties are more against the war on drugs. They're more pro-pot legalization. They're more pro-gay marriage, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, you know, even though the two parties are even stronger than in the past. The number of different ideas represented in 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 the libertarian direction is going up. Right, yeah. So then from the point of view of libertarians, they're like, oh, well, this is great. Even though the libertarian party isn't growing, the influence of libertarian ideas are growing. So that's what they really wanted in the end. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the proper stance. You know, I they might argue it, libertarian ideas could go further if they had <laughs> a monopoly on those ideas. But yeah, if 
yeah, if uh, ultimately the best way to to have libertarian ideas represented in government is to have them those ideas incorporated, it seems like a good thing. And you know, that's really practically the only way libertarian libertarian ideas will be implemented in in America. Right. Yeah. I guess they're they're on the surface seems to be a sort of trade off where it's like you know if you if you let libertarians ideas into say the other two parties the the democrats and republicans to some extent then there's going to be less less reason for people to vote libertarian so there's like a less pure libertarian influence but overall maybe you're like well the likelihood that these are actually put into effect is so much greater by doing that that the trade off is worthwhile I could, and I yeah. see, like, for example, um, when I was back in Portland, I went to a couple of the local communist party meetups, you know, <laughs> and they talk about stuff. And they totally despised the Democratic Party. And they would never, like, they basically advocated everyone not to vote at all because uh, <laughs> there was no communists on the ballot. Uh, or to write in communists, obviously. Like, write in, you know, your favorite historical dictator. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But in general, the the point was like, you know, they're not going to put into effect our ideas, so therefore we're not going to vote for them. And you would imagine that the, say, communist tendon or communist-leaning people that were less, uh, I don't know, uh, pure about their ideology would be fine to compromise with Democrats or whatever to some extent so that the ideas have more chance of being put into effect. Yeah, I th- I think maybe communism is just kind of a special case because if you have a, it seems like it's either or whether you're a communist government or not. And once you're a communist government, it's just the end. Like there's no more elections. You just implement your system and then it's over. So <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, it, it almost, I don't, it almost doesn't make sense to me to have like the Democratic Party push forward more communist ideas. It seems like it's you're either the Communist Party or you're not. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it would be different from libertarianism, where libertarianism isn't this like either or ideology. It's like you're either you can be more or less libertarian. And within the libertarian party, there's obviously a lot of differences right uh, between people on that. Yeah, uh, I think socialism, as you know, modern socialism, um, is probably uh, kind of like that. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that the way so the way that I would describe what you're saying is there's a difference between a sort of bottom up uh, influence and a top down influence in the position of communism, as it is generally described, where the government controls. Uh, the distribution of goods and the means of production. In those cases, uh, there isn't any marginal benefit to slightly increasing communism level because uh, you're just going to be outcompeted by the market, say, if the government tries to do something or it's going to be hugely inefficient uh, compared to other options. So people are going to be influenced in different ways that you don't want them to be. So you have to force everyone to engage in the single uh operation in order for it to be efficient and it for it to work it's kind of like insurance right um it, it's a little uh well it's very inefficient to have say uh two 
different insurance uh, plans versus just one where everyone pools their risk together. The the larger the risk pool, the the more efficient the system is. Um, and from the uh, the other side, like a, a libertarian approach, it is very marginally beneficial. Like you know, getting slightly more freedom, like legalizing pot, even if you didn't legalize all the drugs, that's still a marginal benefit. You didn't need to actually legalize all the drugs to get any benefit at all. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think uh, communists, there are communists who kind of, yeah, want a marginal change in policy. Like there are, and there are communist parties around the world that advocate for, you know, stronger labor union stuff like that but yeah to me that doesn't seem really like to be a communist stance seems like you know a progressive stance basically mm-hmm. and yeah a, a basically for there to be communism you need a communist government you know which is like all or nothing mm-hmm. yeah the, what i'm saying about the insurance is kind of like how under uh obamacare right had to pass the what was it called? The something mandate? Individual, individual mandate. mandate. Right. You had to force people to buy insurance because by general law, if you just, you know, had only half the people buying insurance, it would be totally bad. And you have to do yeah, that. You need to have the sick people. You have to have an individual mandate for every single policy for communism to work. <laughs> and, well, okay. And you would have need some pretty extreme policies yeah i mean that's not the only thing you would need but yeah (laughs) and then talking about socialism yeah yeah, it's interesting to bring up socialism because that is something that seems to have some marginal uh effects to it that uh so how would socialism be broadly described it's not just providing social services it's it's something like the government starting to uh run things like healthcare stuff like that yeah i i think yeah i think like properly described like socialism as it originally came from marx and those people um i think it would be basically the same thing as communism you either have (laughs) a socialist government or you don't but i think basically now people who call themselves socialists uh like bernie sanders are just progressives yeah so there's definitely the side of social welfare and, you know, union, workers' rights, things like that, that's on the basically just progressive. And I think that's what people mean by socialism yeah. a lot uh, in the common parlance. Yeah. But yeah, on those sides. So, yeah, so it gets confusing. Yeah. So Or like democratic socialists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in those sides, it does seem like you can get some marginal effects. And that's why socialism has been, or I would say that's a, it's a big reason why socialism has grown and become so prominent in public discourse compared to you know where it was in the cold war say in american politics specifically it was kind of a big deal for bernie to call himself a socialist it was kind of a you know breaking through the the barriers yeah yeah apparently yeah communism had yeah some this is off topic but <laughs> or a slightly off topic but apparently it had a lot of support uh in the american and in, in america uh during parts of cold war hmm. oh yeah or and and i guess 
if mostly before, yeah. But it's kind of largely suppressed history. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, it was a uh, suppressed history even in during the time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so done an interesting overview here. What what are the conclusions that we're starting to draw? Is that the the number of parties is not so important uh, as a predictive factor? So maybe that's a red herring. But what about third parties? Um, I think that the, the question that I still have unanswered is: uh, Let's say in this election the Libertarian Party gets twenty percent of the vote. What does that say? Because that has to be significant for something, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it says the major parties aren't representing uh, views that a large number of people hold. Mm -hmm. So there's something like uh, the parties are failing to represent people, so people are willing to make the transition to a third party in protest, even though they know the third party is not going to win. It's yeah. always sort of a, it's a funny situation because like I've listened to a couple interviews with Joe Jorgensen, which is the 2020 candidate for the Libertarians. And I think, she, I, I find her really interesting. I think she's great. But um, she's always talking as if she has a chance to win. <laughs> she always has to make it clear that it's like, you know, we can win this if we all vote together, et cetera, et cetera. But everyone knows there's no chance that she's going to win. So yeah. It's sort of this lie that you have to pretend. And it's weird that you have to do that. Yeah, Kanye is saying he can win too. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, maybe there's different reasons for <laughs> why he's saying that. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I don't know in either, either case. Um, well, okay, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. It's just that you can't admit that you aren't going to win because that's the whole point of voting in the default sentences you're voting because you think that they should be the president right so you can't run and say you know i'm not going to be the president but you should vote for me anyway in kanye's case i think he's just insane yeah for joe i think it's more like uh i have to keep some legitimacy about my candidacy uh and i i'm standing for certain policy positions i'm running as a legitimate candidate so I should be treated like one. And I can't admit defeat uh, preemptively. So she's lying? I think she's being political. I, I think that she probably doesn't, or I would say 100%, she doesn't think she can win the election. But I think that uh, she's not being disingenuous. I think that she thinks that her policies really would be the correct policies. Wait, what? Okay, I mean, that doesn't have to deal with whether she's lying or not i i mean i think i think you're saying that she's lying if she thinks she's not going to win and she's saying she's going to win uh well okay i should i should say this more clearly then i don't think that she's being disingenuous about saying that she thinks that she would be a better president than the other candidates and that she is running with the intent that if i ran i would be a better President. Wait, or if I my 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 question is: Is she lying when she says she's going to win, 
the presidency. Well, she doesn't say it outright like that. She doesn't say she's going to win or even that she has a good chance of winning. She or says that, she can that... win. Okay. It, do you think she's being dishonest there? No, I don't think she's being dishonest. She doesn't play it very much. So I, I think that she definitely could be more uh, misleading about it. And I think she does it pretty well. So she's being... So she's delusional? No. So, so okay. Wait, she, but but you just said everybody knows she can't win. <laughs> oh, yes. So that... Uh, okay. I, I guess that's sort of a, a mix-up in terms here. So uh, everyone knows that her chances of winning are very, very small. Like, infant, like maybe, you know, less than 1% at this point. Okay, so she could just be talking about... You know, I can win, and referring to the point one percent chance. So that's what I'm saying. Is like it's possible well, okay. for her to I win mean, technically, but when I say that she, everyone knows she can't win, I mean like no one expects her to win. Okay. Maybe there's some loons out there that are like you know living in the middle of Chile and think that the libertarian candidate can win, but I I don't think that the majority of libertarian voters think that she can win. They're voting because she thinks that, or they think that she represents their, you know, policy preferences. And by giving her the vote, they're signaling to the other parties that it's like, you know, we're willing to vote for this candidate. So you better adopt these policies or you're losing our votes. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, that's the, yeah, that's basically the function of third parties in America. Yeah. So that's, so this comes back to the question then, like what would happen if 20% of the vote was captured by Joe? Um, I think that that wouldn't happen uh, in the first place because if that was even possible, then the other parties are making a huge mistake and sacrificing a ton of influence they could have had. But uh, it kind of happened with Ralph Nader, right? He he got a good percentage of the vote, more than enough to swing the election. That's true. So those are very exceptional circumstances. I guess, what was it? There was Ross Perot as well. When was that? I I don't remember. But in that case, I think the parties did uh, pick up Nader's platform. I think the Democratic Party, more than the Republican Party, about regulations and stuff like that. So if he ran a couple of years later, it wouldn't have gained as much traction. Uh-huh. Well, okay, here's another example of parties not mattering as much, which is Donald Trump. You know, he ran as a third party, I think, or he was a member of a third party a long time ago. And recently, in 2016, he ran as a Republican. And he basically, I mean, he was a Democrat his whole life. Trump? His, yeah. Well, I mean, he switched his between beliefs. sides, right? Really? Yeah, I, thought he... I think there, there was a pretty interesting analysis that showed that he was always uh, the party of the opposite of the president, the current president. Oh, that's weird. But okay, well, uh, but he's not exactly a Republican. I assumed he was Democrat. I think he was a Democrat uh, the majority of the time. Yeah, and his image, I'm pretty sure, is. Of a Democrat. I mean, he hung around with the Clintons, stuff like that. He hung around with rappers. He's from New York City. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, he came into the Republican Party as not really a conservative. Right. And not having been a conservative ever. And basically, yeah, highly disagreeing with all the other candidates on many issues. And then, yeah, he won the election. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a good example of, uh, yeah, the number of parties not really representing what happened ideologically. What happened is like this third um, this third viewpoint won the election within the two-party system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think we can both agree that Trump is not conservative. Uh, I don't know if we would say that he's liberal. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean... <laughs> he's, uh, I don't know, erratic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly those, I, I doubt he cares about... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, he he definitely doesn't seem conservative. He loves his black people. <laughs> I think that's a quote. <laughs> and probably abortions. Oh, yes. I think there was like some rally. He was like, hey, look at my African-American over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was in writing. It's here. Oh, really? Oh, man. Yeah, where I am. Nice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, it is an interesting viewpoint. So then... The question that that begs is, does that mean that the parties beforehand were not representing people's views? So they were willing to sort of throw out party loyalty for this third option? Uh, yeah, that seems right. Yeah. The rationale here for most conservatives is that they just hate Democrats so much that they are willing to vote for Trump. So that seems a little different. It's more like they were... It's not so much that they abandoned their policy preferences that they thought that none of their candidates were good enough. Yeah, yeah, it's a combination of yeah, both. There's like, you know, 30 per, 30 to 40% of Republicans who actually kind of liked Trump as a candidate and then once he won the primary, he got like all the Republican votes. Mm-hmm. For like whether they agreed with them or not. Yeah. Yeah, so the party loyalty on policy comes in there. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely he never won a majority of any of the primaries. And he wasn't considered really the winner of any of the debates really, but he won a plurality in the end. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah, between like 30 30 35% for a long time. Yeah. That's totally crazy. Oh yeah, this kind of so this relates to something we read uh, to some extent, in preparation, we re- we read The Prince by Machiavelli, Niccolo, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't read it before. Oh, you haven't? Okay. Yeah, there's some parts he. It's interesting to relate this to populism. So there's this part he's talking about how. So let's say you're a prince, and you're in a circumstance where you can rise by the power or the say the favor of the people or you can rise by the favor of the nobles and the aristocracy, then what should you do? And his answer was that um, it's always better to have the people on your side because the aristocracy, if they help you rise, is always going to be trying to uh, compete with your power. They're going to be trying to uh, see themselves as equal to you. But on the part of the people, um, they just want to not be oppressed. So it's really easy to satisfy them. (laughs) 
So it's, it's, it's always preferable yeah. to have them on your side. And if you do rise through the power of the aristocracy, you should immediately get the people on your side, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, that seems like yeah, how Trump won. He basically didn't use the uh Republican apparatus at all. Unlike, you know, Clinton basically was never a, a, that popular of a candidate, but she had the entire democratic machine <laughs> working to uh get her elected and get not get Bernie Sanders elected. Yeah. <laughs> Infamous. So yeah, I, I guess the theory from Prince would be that Trump can be much more effective than Hillary or, um, once he got elected. Yeah. Since he's not beholden to the people who got him elected. Um, yeah, all he has to do is keep the people satisfied by not oppressing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to basically have worked. Uh, in terms of his influence on the Republican Party. Like, he's just totally dominated it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he has been... Inf he has, he's had some worse influences, but <laughs> uh, he's definitely not beholden to the Republican Party. Oh, yeah, I don't think that he's been a good influence on the Republican Party, but he has a, been a significant... No, I mean... I mean I meant there have been worse influences on him, but oh. the influences on him haven't been the Republican Party. <laughs> yeah, and the the Democrats have certainly stood in the way of lots of his big plans, his big walls. But uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think that uh, if there's I think this might be a good place to transition to the last part of what we were going to talk about. What do you think? Sure. And I can connect it. I have a good segue here. So uh, this last segment, we wanted to talk about what our thoughts are for the election happening in a couple of days here on November 3rd. And maybe we can briefly discuss what we think the outcome will be. And then we can discuss uh what the certain uh timelines what the possibilities are in each option and i think that one of the interesting questions is so let's say trump loses right uh how quickly does the republican party totally discard him and forget about him <laughs> so that's yeah a, that's interesting yeah, so that's a question that i've had in my mind for a bit so be interesting to talk about that but first of all uh we can <laughs> uh, so what do you think the chances are of Trump winning versus Biden winning what do you think the uh, situation is there I, I, I think you're with me but I, I mean I I think like the projection on 538 is probably pretty accurate uh, that was like 90% Biden I think um, yeah I mean from the little I've looked at their methodology it seems pretty good and it looks like there's a lot of uh good polls in the right states so it's hard to imagine them being very far off um yeah 538 did a pretty good job it looks like with the last election which was 7030 clinton but uh that wasn't <laughs> alexa turn off oh my gosh um, 
Yeah, so there's a there's a pretty diff big difference here. So there's 538 has um, has Biden at 89 percent and Trump at 11 percent. And uh, the other source yeah. that I, I find pretty good is election betting odds, which puts Trump at 35% and Biden at 65%. So, oh, and that's ridiculous. That's a very big difference. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I think betting odd sites aren't good for this because um, I think you need to set up a model for every state and look at the polls and do all that calculation to even have a you know to even start to have a reasonable guess uh that's as good as the other forecasters and obviously not not many people have done that so and the betting gods are just kind of people looking at the forecasts and then people betting and but yeah, anyways, I, I I don't I don't think there's any reason to think the betting odds are better than the forecasts in this case. And then, I mean, yeah, obviously the number itself I think is pretty crazy. But it's easy to imagine why Trump would have thirty five percent because he had this crazy upset uh, in the last election, and people like to bet the underdog just because there's a bigger return in case it wins and also trump has this cult uh following so <laughs> i imagine he has some bets from those people uh yeah but you can say the same thing about the other side of the bet like sure there are bigger returns but on average you're going to win more money if you think that trump biden's more likely to win that that's not true you only win more money if you're um if your bet is more likely to happen than the forecast um, tells you. Right. Yeah, so if you're, yeah. So um, I think it's more appealing to people to bet on something where they'll have a big return if they do win, even if the chance that they win is small. Like if you, even if you bet Biden and you put 65 cents on it and you get back um whatever a dollar if you win that's not very exciting <laughs> oh okay so if you're talking in terms of excitingness sure yeah but in terms of the statistical payoffs it, the only difference is the difference in percentage points that you think the correct percentage is from the current percentage it doesn't matter whether it's high or low yeah, but I yeah I know I mean I mean for a rational better, but I think the betting odds uh, are reflecting people that aren't voting like that. I think people are voting just to vote the underdog, and, and if you look at betting markets in general, the underdog tends to do better than they should be doing. If you look at like sports or anything else, hmm. so the same thing seems to be happening here, but super amplified, <laughs> which isn't. Which isn't surprising. Wasn't it a great opportunity? Shouldn't you just go and predict it right now and put like a hundred dollars down on Biden? Yeah, I th yeah, I think that would be a good bet. Yeah, maybe I will. <laughs> Wait, is it really sixty-five percent? Uh, well, let me see. Actually, maybe I'll maybe I'll do that right now. 
Yeah, I'll I'll do it after the podcast. If it is, if it's really Trump, successful. Oh man! Wow, unpredicted. Trump's at forty-two. Oh god. Okay, I'm definitely doing <laughs> that. Okay. Well, then here's a hypothetical. Then suppose that Trump wins. What does that say? About what? Does that change your mind about betting odds at all? No. no? Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. It would just, it would depend on betting odds. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to change your mind about them because they don't really have a rationale unlike forecasts, but, uh, I would, yeah. I mean, I, I think the forecast, like the 538 forecast, I think that's the right way to predict the election and, I think it's almost impossible that they're doing it the right, the wrong way. And even in the last election, I think they did the right thing, um, given the data, the polling that they had. And uh, it happened that there wasn't enough polling in the right states and qu- quality enough polling, and, and they were wrong enough. Um, but I think they took the right approach. So maybe then the question is, are polls as useful as they think they are? And ideally, uh, election betting odds aren't using polls as much as the 538 prediction is. This is sort of a different question. I don't know if we want to talk about this so much. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they have a, a stance really on how useful the polls are. It's just they're use, more useful than not polls. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's what you have, so you, so you have to use them. I guess if they're not if they're really less useful, then you would just have a lower confidence in them. So you'd be closer to 50-50, maybe. Um, yeah, but okay. okay. Yeah, that is insane, though, that Trump's at 42 and predicted What the hell? Yeah, that I that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's right there. But you can look at just... it. <laughs> yeah, that does, that's crazy. Um... Yeah, I I guess yeah maybe it's the recent news about Florida, but yeah, even so, hmm. yeah, I'd have to look at the time. I don't have it at the moment. Moment, maybe we can do a episode on election or uh, betting markets at some point. I think that though, in some of these, you know recent contested uh elections that betting odds have done pretty well like for example in the uh in the congressional elections in 2018 election betting odds were much better than the polls in 538 just across all the races yeah uh i mean uh... I mean, that by, I don't know. I mean, that by itself doesn't say very much. Oh, yeah, much. yeah. So it's yes. only, you know, one more data point. But uh, it seems like in some of these cases where it's like people are surprised by the results, like they're surprised in 2016. And I'm guessing that there will be some surprises in 2020. At least the same amount of surprise. I'm sure that, I'm pretty sure that the amount of surprise won't be enough to put Trump over the edge. But, you know, uh, it'll be surprising to some extent. Oh, okay. I, I don't think. Okay. <laughs> I 
Well, okay. Here, here, I can yeah, my my. Pre- I mean, this is we're making our predictions, right? My prediction is, uh, well, yeah, that it won't be that surprising. That it, I mean, there's a range of non-surprising outcomes, and <laughs> I think it'll be in that range. You, okay. Do you think it'll be more or less surprising than 2016? Much less surprising. Okay. I I think 2016 was a huge anomaly. Uh huh. I mean, there does seem to be a few anomalous things happening now, too, right? It's kind of a unique situation. Uh, in other yeah, ways, that are all that are all accounted for in the thing. <laughs> well, I mean, you can think that, yeah. I mean, that's my prediction. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so here's the question: Will Will Trump, if he loses, concede the mm. election? Yes, this is... very quickly. This is a good question. Like. Like basically, whenever, uh, like, will he concede pretty close to when the results are called by like the major news networks? Right. Uh, not like within a week. <laughs> yeah, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Here's I think there's a few things that go into this because, um, I'm sure that you know, whatever, CNN, MSNBC are going to be calling the election early or then it's decided, something like that. But I think that the real thing that is going to be confusing is that there's so many mail-in ballots that might take longer to count than normal. So I doubt that it's going to be decided on election night. Um, well, I, I think the... The uh, news networks are pretty good about being uh, pretty conservative about about calling the elections. So if it's not decided by the first night, um, I think the news networks won't call it. And then, um, but you're saying Trump is going to call it much later than the news networks? Uh, well, no, actually. I think he's probably going to try and call it earlier. Because I yeah, think there's going to be I, bias towards conservatives voting in person. Or, you know, Trump voters voting in person. So he's going to hit sort of a peak on election night. And then there's going to be, you know, however many mail-in ballots are counted after that are mostly going to be blue. Okay. Uh. Well, I, yeah, I mean... I think I broadly, I mean, I basically agree that he'll call it close to when the networks call it. Yeah. And then, okay, so so, so, so now we decided that, uh, whether or not he's going to admit defeat if he, if he loses yeah, the so, vote. Which, I mean, this is a matter of some controversy, so we're taking a definite <laughs> stance on this. I Yeah, I mean, I think he's just going to call it election. I, I think yeah, I mean, he's implying that he, he. I mean, he's been implying that he <laughs> won't concede for a long time. But I, I, yeah, I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like he's basically trolling. Yeah, I I totally agree. And so when we're talking about these mail-in votes and stuff, right? That's for the popular vote, but the real vote that matters is the electoral college, and that's going to be called much, you know, more decisively. I think. I okay. think that Trump's. I mean, I think that 
Biden, if he wins, is probably going to have like a pretty overwhelming victory in the Electoral College. That's yeah. usually how these things go. So, but, but, yeah. By the way, I think Trump is going to be pretty happy to concede <laughs> also. He's done. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he'll be happy to get out of get out of there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell. He seems really stressed <laughs> a lot of times. Like, especially he hates the interviews. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how much he wants to be there. Yeah, okay. Okay, there's a whole other topic of, like, psychoanalyzing Trump. But other than that, I think that... No, 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 this is a predictable... <laughs> or a... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Verifiable prediction. Mm. Like, like, when he's conceding, does he seem really pissed off? or? or oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Um... So what is your prediction you answer, that he, he will be pissed off or he won't? That he won't oh, okay. be. That's what I'm that's my prediction. Yeah. Right uh I think he probably just won't I don't think he'll be pissed off, but I don't think he'll be like uh, outwardly happy or anything. I think he'll just be like, you know, very very uh emotionless. Oh. Okay. Um I think that yeah, that there is some concern that Trump would not hand over the election if he lost but it seems just so like ridiculous like what does he have to gain by <laughs> trying to stay in office like there's no way that he would succeed in staying in office against the vote yeah yeah and i don't yeah i just don't see yeah i mean yeah i don't think he's any anywhere near being dictator levels. <laughs> uh, uh or to that dictator level, yeah. Yeah, like, that would just be a totally different person, or the kind of person that would do that. Yeah, he, he's definitely said crazy things that would imply that he would do that, and it is very annoying, but as far as actual actions go, he has not been that extreme. Yeah. Like, like even uh, with the Portland stuff, you know, he's like, if you ask me to come in, I will come in with the federal troops. But otherwise, he, he's not coming in. When he could have kind of court-martialed a bunch of cities for being uh, wrecked by Antifa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he loves to talk about stuff, that's for sure. He loves to talk about the stuff that he he's powerful enough to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, what do you think the reaction is going to be if uh, Biden wins? I th I think people are going to get over it pretty quickly. Um, and then yeah, I, I think the Biden presidency is going to be. I think it's actually going to be pretty different. I I feel like it'll be much less polarized, just because the media is heavily democratic, and that's where most of the um appearance of polarization comes from um yeah that's my i think it'll be a kind of a return to normal uh, a little bit compared to the term presidency mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that's right it, it, that's his slogan right return to normalcy is that right <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> but uh wow that's weird i don't that's so weird that i don't know <laughs> I have no idea what his slogan is or what it even could be. That's crazy. 
I'm pretty sure it's I'm with him. <laughs> That's so weird. I I bet yeah, any other presidential candidate you could have uh, identified with Logan last year is I'm with her and make America great again. Yeah, what is Trump's this year or last election? Is Trump still make America great again, or did he make it keep America great? Uh, yeah, I don't know because he hasn't had the rallies as much, but I, I think he gets to keep MAGA. Or, yeah, I don't, yeah. Man, I'm, I'm looking at this map. Uh, Oregon is only at 94% per, uh, on predicted. Okay. I could totally make some money. <laughs> <laughs> only 94%? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know. The other side isn't that feeling evil. Well, yeah, but I mean, what else would I be doing with my money? <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Distraction. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's some worry that, like, you know, some crazy Trump supporters are going to start like shooting up schools or something i don't know but that <laughs> there will be a reaction from the right that feels disenfranchised or that the election was rigged or something right uh wait you're saying that's a worry yeah but yeah i mean our prediction was that well my prediction anyway is that People will get over it pretty quickly. Oh, okay, so you're using that that worry is unfounded. That's not likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe for a couple of days people will complain, but I, yeah, I don't think it'll be significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm on the same page basically. Then I think that people are totally overblowing the reaction to Trump losing. I think that um, probably there's going to be like Trump will complain about it on Twitter or something for a month or so, and then after that, people will just totally forget about it. Oh. I don't, yeah, okay, I I don't even think so. I'd be pretty surprised if he did that, but we'll see. Yeah, that, that's the difference in our predictions. I'd be, yeah, I'd be pretty surprised. That would be pretty pathetic, too, if he was complaining on Twitter after losing. I mean, would you really put it past him? <laughs> well, no, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I, I think if Trump wins, though, I, I think um, they're, could be violence I, I mean this is i not you know not surprisingly you know the violence the actual violence has come mostly overwhelmingly from the left and i think if trump wins again we'll see similar things i, I mean we saw it when he won the first time uh, also oh yeah so this would be the next question then is suppose that trump wins what's the reaction then Yeah, I wouldn't be. I think it'll be much more extreme than if Biden wins. Obviously, we you can't uh, make that observation, but I think there will be considerable uh, reaction. We've already seen like you know a months of protests happening in major cities, mostly uh, from people that are left wing uh groups or whatever they want to self declare as right antifa things like that 
Yeah. So you would expect that that would continue if Trump won, if not increase. Uh, yeah, well, increase from where it is now. Yeah. Do you think it'll be a significant effect, or do you think that like basically it'll just continue? Uh, might be significant. I I think it'll just it'll be another uprising like after George Floyd or after the last election. Well, okay, those are different though. Like after so like in twenty sixteen, there was a few protests in like you know Portland, say, <laughs> but it only lasted for what a couple days maybe. It was longer than that, but it wasn't as long as George Floyd. Yeah, and then this one for sure has been prolonged, especially in... Yeah, actually, yeah, the ones in Portland, it actually like kept coming back. Like, they do it once a week or something. I, I just know because my roommate would go to them. Oh, the anti-Trump protests? Oh, yeah. that's right. There was a the whole, like, not my president thing. Yeah, it was like a couple weeks or... Yeah. Okay. Or maybe a month or two. That's true. I do remember that. I only remember though on the first uh, night that there was like severe damage happening downtown, like fires being set, yeah. cars being turned over. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. So then we can expect that at the very least is what you would say. I think I would agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, that seems like a baseline. Which that's a pretty extreme baseline, but I, that seems like a baseline to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I guess that we should expect to stay in this sort of lockdown situation for uh, a while, and that seems to be part of the fuel for these protests. Uh, not entirely, but people have more time on their hands. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I yeah, this is I, I like making the predictions uh, recorded. Oh yeah. Usually I feel silly making them because they don't mean anything, but it means a, a tiny bit. It means people uh, can hold us to account in a couple days. <laughs> yeah. It's not as meaningful as betting on them, but well, we're gonna do that right now, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll do that too. <laughs> oh man, I just I can't get over that. What forty two percent? That's ridiculous. Yeah, that, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Usually it's predicted as a little bit more moderate than the average. Mm. Like, the average is, uh, from uh, electionbettingodds.com, is that Trump's at 35. That predicted it's way higher. Okay. Sorry, I keep getting distracted. (laughs) Um, what about Biden? Do you think he'll run a second time if he wins? No. Yeah, I think it's like 50-50. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you but, want to put a percentage on it, I would say greater than 60% chance that he doesn't run again for a second term. I'm sure that, like, I'm. I would be... I don't know exactly what I would put on it, but pretty reasonable chance that Kamala would run. Yeah, I mean, that would be, yeah, the alternative. It's really crazy because incumbents have such a huge advantage. Um, Yeah, I I mean, the Republican Party has a great chance of winning if they're up against um, 
I mean, who knows what the Republican candidate is going to look like. <laughs> it's hard to say what will emerge from the ashes of the Republican Party. Oh, of course. But all being equal. So what do you think, uh, if Trump loses, what effect do you think that'll have on the Republican Party? Or well, how do you think the Republican Party is going to react to that? I... I feel like this is going to be an embarrassing episode in in the history of the Republican Party. I think they'll go back to what they were before. Hmm. Yeah, um, they'll have like the Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio types running again. So. Hmm. Yeah, I think that they will run, but I would be surprised if they just tried to return to before because I think that it's surprising how popular Trump has been able to maintain among Republicans. So, yes, significantly it is part of that he's their candidate, so they have to support him. But it's also that, you know, he's gained some real fans, right? People actually uh, think of Trump as uh, a positive improvement in the Republican Party. Not a majority, but that, some that's, amount. That's the thing. That's the thing. They're his fans, and once he's gone, I mean doesn't really have an effect if they just followed him. I mean, it would be different if there were a bunch of, like, Trump-style or uh, candidates or candidates that agreed with Trump, but I, I don't really see any of those. So, I, yeah, I don't see how he could shape the Republican Party going forward. Well, I mean, I think that would be the thing, right, is that Maybe someone tries to be the spiritual successor to Trump. They do the same tactics. Uh, For, say, the 2024 uh, candidacy. Do you think that's going to happen? I, like, I'm sure that someone's going to try it, right? It's going to be a Trump-like candidate. Maybe marginally, but, I mean, we've had four years and... Lots of people run for lots of offices, and I don't see Trump-style Republicans coming up. I I I just see regular Republicans. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I don't I don't think it'll have a big impact on the party long term. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think that I would say he has. I, I think I'm putting a higher likelihood that he has a longer-term impact. Okay. Yeah, I I think he's he's gonna be an embarrassment <laughs> to them, <laughs> even for them. Well, even now, that's true. There's <laughs> plenty of anti-Trumpers out there, or what is it? And never yeah. never Trumpers, right? And the previous candidate Romney, right? He he's not a very big Trump fan either. Yeah. I, okay, I have a final question. All right. We can move on about the prince. Oh, yeah. So, what do you think about um, how Machiavellian he is? Do you think he's, you know, this immoral, uh, kind of pragmatic person? Or, or is he actually uh, advocating for something more noble? but um, maybe acknowledging the reality of the situation. You mean Trump? 
Oh, Machiavelli. Oh, Machiavelli himself. Okay. Um. Could you say the question again? I'm I'm thinking about it. Like, is Machiavelli? I mean, there's a lot of there's been a lot of debates historically about this, and I'm wondering is he? Yeah, kind of this immoral person, or or is he not? Is he immoral or not? Hmm. Like, is he pro cruelty and doing whatever it oh. takes to win, or or is he just kind of acknowledging that that's how things work, but he's not really encouraging that type of behavior? Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> it's a or like there's there's a lot of theories that it's a the prince is a satirical work. Oh, huh. which that that would be, yeah, a, um, a theory that he isn't this Machiavellian <laughs> figure. Right, right. Ah, huh, yeah, that is an interesting take. I don't think I've heard that before. It might be a satire. Um, yeah, just uh, from listening to or from the parts that I recall. There is an interesting um, categorization of the different ways that you can come to power. So he divides it into three categories. You can come to power through the favor of the people. You can come to power through the favor of the nobility or an aristocracy. Or, as he calls it, you can come to power through uh, wicked means. <laughs> and I think that... Um, he he sort of plays around this area. He he says like you know I don't endorse uh, wickedness and I don't think that it's a very um what did he call it? I don't think it's very respectable. And he thinks that while someone that comes to power and you know rules effectively uh, through wickedness um, should be respected more than someone that doesn't, uh, they shouldn't be respected by people that come to power in other ways. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's a pretty explicit uh, position he puts on it, but in terms of his morality, um, I, I don't know really if I have much that I can say about him personally, but talking about his, the, the sort of position on politics and philosophy of real politique, it, it definitely seems to be amoral. Um, it seems like there isn't a mention of what the ends are it's just a matter of the means and i think that you could take it either as like this is abstracted from whatever particular means you're going for so this is good for any means or sorry uh yeah for any ends hey yeah i think you mean the opposite yeah yeah you're the ends are all that matters and the means yeah sorry yeah uh, i misspoke uh that these are abstracted away from the ends and they can work for any ends uh, and he doesn't have a position on which end you should use it for. I think that he personally probably has some opinions on that, but he doesn't express them in his work. Except in the last chapter where he advocates, which I didn't get to the last chapter, but I read a summary, and he advocates for the prince that he's writing to to like use the influence um, that he has on the Pope through like a family relation to like take over a province or something like that. Hmm. It was like using the influence of the church 
to gain power. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. There. So there are interesting questions about that. Like maybe some things are just uh, what would you call it ontologically immoral. That <laughs> it's not a matter of like can you do something good from it that's better than the bad things you do in order to get it. But it's it's uh, it's like it doesn't really matter um, what the goodness or badness of things you're doing are as long as you're getting power. It's just the way you do it. Well, yeah, I mean, that in particular, that does, that doesn't seem moral on any level. Yeah, like the means and the end, which is just to get more territory, that doesn't really seem like a good thing other than, you know. Yeah, I think he, uh, from yeah. what I have read of him, I've I read it a while ago and I was just reading a bit of it more now, is that he almost sees it as natural, like it isn't really a matter of good and evil. It's just like, this is the thing that you do as a prince. And it's the only respectable thing to do as a prince. It's like part of the job title. Yeah, I think he, he kind of, he basically says that throughout the book. And as a natural thing, he probably does seem, he probably does see there being some uh, moral justice in it. It's like things in their natural place. Yeah. But he doesn't frame it in terms of the sort of strict morality that you would think of like religion attaching to. Yeah. 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 It is a kind of morality. If you're saying, yeah, princes should do what princes do. It's like a little bit like Aristotelian for true ethics. Mm -hmm. And it's totally unlike Christian, Christian ethics. Right. Right. This was written, um, Definitely well into Christian's history. It's like 1500s. Yeah. So he talks about the Pope and all that and using the church for whatever means. <laughs> so he's he's well aware that there is a Christianity out there with morals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's this is 1500s, uh, like Italy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's it's everything. And, and uh, yeah, I read that he got killed like pretty soon after writing this book. So <laughs> that makes me wonder, like, if it's a good idea to uh, to uh, follow his advice. <laughs> I mean, getting killed is like, I mean, yeah, he didn't play his cards very well, apparently. Yeah, I mean, if he died by sickness or something, that would have been fine. But getting killed, man, that's just a that's a player. Oh yeah. <laughs> Classic, yeah. Unforced um, error. <laughs> someone, someone took over and political error. Yeah. And that seemed, that's kind of weird. Like, he's not even a prince. You know, he's just this advisor. You, you would think you could get away with that <laughs> if you were politically savvy. But, you know. You would think. Yeah, I yeah. mean, even if he was smart, doesn't mean he's omniscient. But uh, it certainly isn't a point against uh, for him. Yeah, my yeah, my thought uh, to me reading the book, it I thought he was. This is my theory: is that he's autistic, <laughs> and just the whole book gave me that thought. It, it's like, yeah, I was pretty convinced of the idea that he is immoral, basically. And yeah, I'd read a lot and beforehand about people thinking, you know either way and a lot of people think he was basically yeah like a a republican type person but (laughs) 
When you said immoral, did you mean amoral? Yeah, amoral and immoral. Right. Yeah, yeah. I I meant immoral, but I meant I mean both. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about morality, but obviously that entails him doing a lot of immoral things. Yeah. I I don't know, just writing the book, he just seemed kind of unaware or uncaring about the morality of the situations he was describing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the way that he wrote it made me think that it's just a part of his character instead of just an exercise for the book. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that seems possible. It, It was very clearly... I was very impressed with the writing. It was very clearly written. It wasn't like stylized or full of jargon or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's it's very clear. It gets its message across. It uses lots of uh, illustrative examples. <laughs> yeah. Very concrete. Great examples. And he describes, like you were saying before, he describes the very tragic, immoral, horrible things that people can do to maintain power. In the same way that he describes the more beneficial, <laughs> benevolent things people can do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I th- exactly. I, I, yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, most people... And apparently, yeah, it was shocking at the time, and I, I was a little bit surprised, a little bit shocked, I guess, um, by his stance there. But... Yeah, to me, he didn't. It didn't sound like he was trying to be controversial. It just sounded like this is how he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he wanted to be controversial, he would have made that more of a forefront, right? He would try to provoke people by making it stylized or something. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't seem like he was advocating for. Yeah, any particular type of morality, or even the idea that sometimes the means are, it's okay to twist the means in order to achieve a higher end. He didn't seem to be saying that at all. He he seemed to be just saying like, well, if you want to accomplish, you know, (laughs) goal B, then uh, you can do it through goal A, like, like he's talking about math. Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's a system and he's figuring out how the moving parts interact with each other. And it's not a matter of what the point of the system is. It's just a matter of describing the system. Yeah. And he doesn't, I can imagine if he was trying to be controversial or if he was like, you know, deeply say a uh, Satanist or something, I don't know, <laughs> then he would include some semblance of a philosophy, right? Like this is why this is the right way to approach this question or whatever. But he never does that. He never gives any monologue about <laughs> the point of his work or anything like that. It's just a manual. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, it was a little eerie for me. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I thought and it was it's very, very entertaining. <laughs> I thought it was creepy. <laughs> it's it's very unlike like Rousseau or Voltaire or Hobbes mm. or yeah, any of those people. Like for them, you get the sense that they have like you know, these strongly held views about the world and that the views matter in a sense. 
I guess. Um, yeah, and that they have yeah moral beliefs that have moral consequences. And yeah, with Machiavelli, I didn't get any of that. Also, another, I think the prince was actually, compared to all these works of philosophy, it was kind of, it was like different. It, it wasn't a work of philosophy, basically. It, and it wasn't deep. Uh, I think, for, for, um, which kind of saying the same thing. Uh, like the level analysis was shallow. It's not necessarily a criticism, but he analyzed things kind of on the surface. Like it, it was just like, yeah, there's these three broad ways that you can gain power or uh, if you want to influence, if you want to have a strong army, you need to hire uh, or you need to recruit troops from your own region and you can't use mercenaries because mercenaries for a reason A, B, and C, blah, blah, mm. blah. But there, yeah, there was very little beyond that. It, you know, it was just... Yeah, like what you said, it it's just it was just like a manual, and the, yeah, I guess I'm saying there wasn't any philosophy in it. Yeah, yeah. Even though it's it's kind of known as a work of political philosophy, but it didn't even seem like political theory. It it was something sh- shallower than that. Maybe maybe you know very insightful. I think, but the level analysis was different. Yeah, I. Yeah, I think that was, I am agreeing with you, and the way I would describe it is that it was very thorough at the level of analysis that it was at, and it didn't even try to go any deeper than that. So it, that level of analysis, I think, was shallow in comparison to something like Hobbes or Voltaire or uh, those kind of political theorists and philosophers would write about. Um, but in his realm of analysis, I think that it was just so thorough that it was like, wow, this is all there is to it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah, there weren't I mean, any I questions think... left begging. It was just like, yeah, I covered all the details you need to know. <laughs> yeah, he kind of set up that framework, and yeah, I, I'm. I think he probably did a really great job at what he was doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it was. I mean, you can ask questions about how effective a handbook this was, like how much to improve rulers who decided to follow his advice, but. Uh, on the surface, it seems like pretty good. <laughs> I could imagine it being useful in it. it. I mean, I think that it probably stands up the test of time for the types of things that uh, future rulers, future successful rulers would do. Yeah, well, I think, yeah. I mean, most of what he wrote about isn't relevant because, uh, you know, because of, of the types of governments that we do have. But I think is the type of analysis um seems like it was basically right like it was practical and even at the time you know you could disagree with parts of the analysis but it, it seems like the framework largely works and you can kind of move around or change parts of the analysis to keep the overall framework and all of it definitely makes common sense like he doesn't have these in intricate theories that are totally uh, esoteric and rely on very specific details of the system or something. They're like very general observations. 
like uh there's this one part that i thought was really good it was uh that he was saying how germanic um towns are so well established and hard to attack because uh in reality it's really hard to have a siege uh because the army is going to be interfered with by somewhere else and germany is so uh uh disunified that there's plenty of other actors on the stage willing to come in and interfere and then also um the people on the inside they they uh don't own a lot of property outside of the town so they're not attached to the countryside and therefore uh when the armies come they can just lock up into their town and they don't have to worry about the outside and the ruler doesn't have to worry about losing influence because their subjects now are losing a lot of value by you know the town around or the, the area around the town getting uh, destroyed or taken over. And then the uh, resolution he has to like keep your power in these sorts of situations that makes it impossible to attack is that the ruler needs to balance um, the loyalty of their subjects to them uh, because they want to inspire hope that you know we're going to get through this and you're going to get things back to the way they were before uh, before being attacked. And also balancing that with their their fear of the outsiders that you know if we get attacked then uh, and they get in uh, without my help then you you're screwed <laughs> they're gonna kill you right and it's very reminiscent of lots of political situations in general like you know you, you want to be loyal and hopeful but also you want to be fearful of the other side yeah 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 I think yeah his main point was German cities are compact and they're easy to defend and they tend to be free or because of that and he said like the swiss are the best armed <laughs> uh, nation in the world and they're also the free right still true <laughs> yeah why why yeah that's kind of surprising i don't i don't understand why they're so alarmed now but you know why that is um i mean it's definitely cultural but i don't know what the specific reasoning is yeah, it's very odd. Like the rest of Europe, <laughs> to not be armed at all. And then, yeah, America, <laughs> you would think is the is the most heavily armed. Yeah, I think in Switzerland, it's a requirement to have a firearm, and you have to. Wow. You have to serve in the militia. Okay. Not so you have to serve in the militia regardless, and then your your firearm is all the time. Mm -hmm. so i guess it's hard to invade <laughs> yeah yeah so i guess my theory is maybe your distinction is where i want to go like i think he's amoral more than immoral mm -hmm. in that he wasn't trying to be malicious it was just that he didn't have awareness of morality which I think makes him immoral but um, I think if you then told him like you're being bad because of this I think he just wouldn't have a response to that mm -hmm. he, he wouldn't disagree he would just not care right right yeah you guys are saying it's not a uh, exclusive distinction the fact that he's amoral does not mean that he's not immoral, but it's different from being intentionally immoral. It's just that he. He's yeah, I don't. I don't think he's Hitler. <laughs> I think he's 
Oh, that's sick. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I'm going to look at his biography and see if there are other indications of this. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, that would be an interesting theory. It seems totally plausible. I mean... <laughs> because it's weird, like, thinking that this came from 15th, uh, 16th century Europe, 1500s, like Italy, and then the fact, I mean, the, the fact that there's this entire, like, substantial book where it's like Christianity and morality doesn't exist, but he's talking about these, <laughs> you know, heavily moral topics. It, it's just weird reading it, and I, I think you'd have to be really, in like, individual to come up with something like this. Yeah. Like, everything else I read from that period is, like, <laughs> it's very obvious, like, when it was written <laughs> and stuff, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. I think uh, maybe even incorporating the fact that he was killed. So, suppose, well, I guess, uh, in judging the theory of whether he's autistic or not, um, a lot of the book is about how the rulers can have this sort of non-personal interaction with everyone, right? It's not about how to um, convince a specific person to believe something that's going to help you. It's like very broad scale things that don't involve talking to them personally. So what what was that? It's like the, the book is not about how to be conniving and secretive and manipulating people by talking to them and convincing them things, right? It's all about how power acts at scale and you're interacting pretty non-personally with the groups of people or your subjects. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he seemed to have a genuine intellectual interest or like that was his only interest. It was like an intellectual interest. Right, right. In in the topic which is really weird. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm just goes and, along with it though that oh, like mm-hmm. if uh if he really was something like immoral and trying to be super deceptive and uh, trying to manipulate people, you think you would focus on that part more. Cause that's like, you know, what you would be doing is trying to deceive people and to get them to do what you want against their best interests. But he doesn't yeah. focus on that at all. So maybe that's part of it is that, you know, his autism, he just doesn't understand how to, to, be empathetic or to understand other people to the extent that he can manipulate them in person. Yeah. I, I wonder if he even anticipated like the backlash to his <laughs> Right, exactly. Book. And then he wouldn't predict someone getting angry enough to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know if the killing had to do with the book, but do you know? Oh, I, I have no idea. But, but maybe I'm sure that Whatever caused him to write the book probably caused him to get killed. (laughs) But it it seems like he wouldn't like publish or like give away the book in a public way if he knew that the backlash it would cause. Right? That doesn't make any sense. Did he do it publicly? Especially if I thought that it was uh, specifically for this prince that he was advising. But yeah, but isn't that a public gesture? Oh. Uh, maybe I don't know if it would be expected to be distributed. Yeah, yeah. I I I think so. I mean, and he published stuff before this, and I'm pretty sure. But okay. I can look into it. But I'm yeah, I'm pretty sure. And people pretty quickly read it, and 
But yeah, if he did put it out there publicly, it wouldn't really make any sense to that if he was aware that people would hate him for <laughs> publishing it. <laughs> and if he's totally unaware, then he there's he's clearly, uh, yeah, psychologically very uh, different from other people mm-hmm. and deficient in a certain way. Yeah, if he's able to think so intelligently about these topics and then totally unaware <laughs> in this other way. Yeah, and yeah, the, the unawareness. Yeah, I mean, it, he seemed to benefit from, you know, being able to ignore whether or not he has this uh, neurological difference. He seemed to be benefit from being able to ignore like the morality of what he was writing about in order to write this analysis. Yeah. Yeah, that would certainly help him <laughs> not worry about the moral yeah, it, it, yeah, if he was constantly distracted by the morality, he couldn't yeah, write this book. And, it, yeah, it just, yeah. He, he kind of reminds me of philosophers now. <laughs> Yeah, and and the writing reminded me of it too. I think it's yeah, su- surprisingly, um, hmm. yeah, very clear and analytical. So you don't think it's satire? I definitely don't <laughs> think it's satire. Yeah, and I all yeah. I guess I also am saying I don't agree with the people who disagree <laughs> with them. Maybe. That's yeah. That seems to be the point. But yeah, I don't think it's satire either. Interesting. The satire just seems to be like if you can't reconcile how someone could actually believe something like this, <laughs> so then you come up with like this very complex explanation. It's like, oh, maybe he actually didn't mean it; and he meant something else. That's like a way to reconcile that. But I feel like I know people like this so i i feel like i i can and and personally maybe but i feel like i can understand yeah that there are people like this Uh, yeah i I could see him see it i don't think it's satire yeah yeah i i think i think i agree then uh it's, it's way too dry and way too like uh, genuine to be not sat or to be satire. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't see anything in the text that would indicate that it's satire. Yeah, the only satirical part is that <laughs> you find it so outrageous that someone could believe this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is kind of. Yeah, I. I mean, I, I can kind of see where that theory comes from, but. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't seem like satire. All right. Anything you want to say in closing? Uh this election sucks. <laughs> both both candidates are so. I'm so disappointed. And there are many Democrats that I was kind of okay with, but. Yeah, they chose well, basically the worst one. So for me, so 
yeah very disappointing yeah um, yeah i i uh i would have been happy with the other democrats much better as well especially i think one of the main considerations was that uh it was like who had the best chance of beating trump right but I feel like with the COVID situation that <laughs> the other Democrats would have just, you know, had no problem. I don't, but yeah, I don't even, I think Biden uh, was always going to do fine against Trump. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I know. I, I just mean that, like, if people are worried about uh, one of the other candidates not beating Trump, then the fact that we have the COVID situation definitely raises their chances. Oh okay, yeah. I I don't even care, <laughs> but that seems like the right analysis. Yeah. Uh. Ho- hopefully, we'll have. I mean, <laughs> chances are we'll have two new candidates next election, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So here, okay. One last prediction then. Do you think things are going to get more crazy or less crazy over the next four years if uh, Biden wins? Less crazy. Yeah, I made that prediction. Yeah, less crazy. All right. Well, let's. uh, We're probably both hoping for that. (laughs) At least, yeah. At least on the surface, because media is democratic. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, maybe I should be more specific then. Like, do you think that politics are going to become more extreme or less extreme? Less extreme. Okay. Not just the superficial part of it. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it, but it'll be hard to tell what's going. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, yeah. Well, that will, since that seems to be the likeliest uh, timeline that we enter, uh, we can look for some changes in the political environment then, changes towards the less extreme. <laughs> Yeah, but I think in four years we could be right back, <laughs> depending on what yeah Republicans do. I, yeah, I don't. I think it'll be quieter for four years, but I don't think that it will be very meaningful that it it is that quiet. I think you know people. Some groups are just going to keep quiet for a while without changing their beliefs. Yeah, and I mean, think of how it led up to Trump. Right, it was. Yeah, basically. Obama yeah. for eight years, and then all of a sudden Trump. Yeah, and yeah, the Obama years appeared much quieter than they should have. Uh, yeah, if we knew what was going on. Yeah, apparently, in retrospect, <laughs> seemed pretty fine at the time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll stop yeah. here. Stop here.